I believe, I believe that nothing, nothing improves a person's life more than good theology. Okay? Nothing improves a person's life more than what they believe about God being the right things to believe about God. And then I believe the con, the contrast is true as well. The converse is true as well, that nothing is more detrimental to a person's life than bad theology. Nothing improves a person's life more than good theology, and nothing is more detrimental to a person's life than bad theology. Would you agree with that? That what you believe about God, it impacts how you think, how you feel, and how you live your life. That if you, if you fundamentally believe that God loves you, then that impacts how you think and how you feel and how you live, the decisions that you make. If you believe that God hates you or won't forgive you for what you've done, or maybe even that God is apathetic towards you, that God just doesn't care what's going on in your life, then that fundamentally impacts how you think, how you feel, how you live. And here's the thing. I think that most of us, and that may be extreme, I don't know if it's most of us, but many of us, including me for most of my life, I believe that many of us, our theology is rooted primarily in our personal experiences. And let me say that again. I know that's a, that's a mouthful. But I believe that our theology is primarily rooted in our personal experiences. If we, throughout our life, things have gone pretty well. We've asked for things and we've pretty much gotten most of the things that we wanted and we felt like we needed and we feel like our life has gone pretty well, then that fundamentally shapes our theology. And on the other hand, if we feel like we've gotten a raw deal, if we feel like we've asked for things and we haven't been heard and we haven't been listened to, then that fundamentally shapes our theology. If we believe that everything we have, it's pretty much because we worked for it and we worked really hard and we everything that we have is because of us, then that fundamentally shapes our theology. If we believe that the people in our life have been good and helpful and kind and wonderful to be around, then that shapes our theology. And conversely, if we believe that the people in our life have mistreated us and oppressed us, then we believe... And that shapes our, our theology. But here's what the Bible offers us. The Bible offers us a theology that transcends personal experience. Okay? The Bible, the gospel, Jesus offers us a theology that transcends personal experience. That, that doesn't mean that it, it discounts personal experience. It doesn't mean that your personal experience isn't important. But the gospel offers you a theology that transcends personal experience. What that means is when your theology is primarily rooted in the story of Scripture rather than primarily rooted in your own story, then you have a theology that is unshakable. See, if because if it's my story that shapes what I think about God, if my experiences, and when things go well, that makes me think God is this way. And when things don't go well, it makes me question whether or not God is really loving or whether or not God really listens to me or 
whether or not God really keeps his promises, then my theology, my faith is all over the place, isn't it? And that's, that's what a lot of us experience. And in the last 15 years of working with Christian people across this country and working with people that I love and that love God and love Jesus, I've seen people's faith be incredibly shakable because their theology is primarily rooted in their own personal experience. But what I want to encourage us, especially this month, and as we wrap up this whole year of committed, that that I want, Jesus wants, the gospel wants our theology to be primarily rooted in the story of Israel, in the, in the story of the God of Israel, in the story of a God who made a commitment to the people of Israel and how that story culminates in the birth, in the life, in the ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the reign of King Jesus. And when our theology is primarily rooted in the story of Israel and the story of Israel's God, then we have a theology that transcends personal experience and is unshakable. And that way we know even when things aren't going well, even when our heart is broken, even when we're crushed, we know who God is. Because we know this story. And our theology that changes everything and affects how we think, affects how we feel, affects how we live, this theology transcends our own personal experiences. So, with that in mind, we're going to be in the book of Hosea this morning. Now, some of us know a little bit about Hosea, some of us know nothing about Hosea, but if you know something about Hosea, chances are it's about Hosea's marriage. Do you remember? Hosea was married to... uh, a professionally uh, unfaithful person, right? That's the nicest way I could think about saying it. And God told Hosea to marry an unfaithful woman so that Israel and all those that would come after could see how God feels when His people are unfaithful to Him. And so Hosea's life, his everything about his life illustrates the relationship between God and Israel. It illustrates not only that God is very angry and God is very heartbroken and God will punish his people. Because not long after Hosea's life, the the kingdom of Assyria comes in and destroys and carries off Israel into captivity, and they're scattered and dispersed after that for a very, very long time. And Hosea's story illustrates why, why that had to happen. But it also illustrates that God would redeem his people. And it illustrates that there's still hope for those who would weep, and seek the favor of the Lord. But here's the thing about Hosea. We know we say, oh, I, I know that story. Hosea and Gomer, I love that story. It's a great story. That's just the first three chapters of a 14-chapter book, okay? That's the first three chapters. Hosea goes on, and there's so much, so much about Hosea that is so good and rich. And like I do every week, I encourage you, don't, don't just listen to the sermon. Go home and read the whole book. The book is, the book is better than the movie, okay? Hosea chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 2, okay? Hosea chapter 12 and verse 2. It says this, The Lord has an indictment 
That's what the whole book is about. This indictment against Israel. He says the, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Now, you probably know this. Let me put a map up here real quick. And so you probably know that Israel and Judah during Hosea's time was divided. Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, Hosea lived about 700 years before Jesus. And as I was getting ready this morning, I thought 700 years, we just say that kind of stuff. It just rolls off our tongue like 700 years before Jesus. And we don't stop and think about how long that is. You know, I was thinking, okay, this is 2018. If we went 1918, 1718, if we went back 700 years, 1318. Okay, when did Columbus discover, at least my history teacher told me it was 1492, right? Columbus sailed the ocean. We're talking over 100 years before that, 1318. From 1318 until now, 2018, that's 700 years. And Hosea lived further removed from Jesus than that. It's a long time. And so that's the time period. And again, Assyria is about to come in and destroy Israel. They don't know that yet. But Hosea is telling them that. And it's telling them why they're going to be punished. Because they've been unfaithful to God. But he says, it's interesting. He says, the Lord has an indictment against Judah. Now, he's primarily talking to the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. But he also says Judah. And then he doesn't call Israel Israel. He calls Israel Jacob. Jacob. Now, Jacob, the, their ancestor, Jacob, his name was changed to Israel. We'll talk about that in just a second. But Jacob's name means he cheats. <laughs> now, how'd you like to go around with a name like that? He cheats. You, nobody would ever play any games with you, right? You know, I mean, that, that was Jacob's name. He cheats. And so Hosea is going to use Jacob's story to remind Israel why they're in trouble with God. Why God has a problem with them because they're repeating some of the sins of their ancestor. But the hope is also there. So he says this, verse 3, In the womb he, that's Jacob, took his brother by the heel. And that's why he was named, he cheats or he grabs his brother's heel because he had a hold. They're twin brothers. Esau comes out first and Jacob comes out and he's holding on to his heel like, I'm going to get what's yours. And that's exactly what Jacob and what Jacob does, right? Jacob steals and cheats his brother out of his blessing and out of his birthright. And, and why is Hosea saying to the people of Israel, in the womb he took his brother by the heel? Because that's exactly what Jacob's descendants, what Israel was doing then. They were taking their brother by the heel. They were cheating, lying, and stealing. Hosea said in chapter 4, he said, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no, listen to this, no knowledge of God in the land. They're swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed you're you're taking your brother by the heel you're taking what belongs to other people other people's wives other people's money other people's land other people's stuff 
you're cheating, you're oppressing, you're manipulating, you're lying. That's why God has a problem with you, Jacob, Israel. And then he says this in the latter part of verse 3. He says, and in his manhood, he strove with God. Now, that's what Israel means. Israel means wrestles with God. And that's why Jacob's name was changed to Israel. You remember? Because Jacob spent all night wrestling with an angel. And, and that, this is interesting. I mean, nobody else could say that, right? They spent all night wrestling with an angel, wrestling with God. Now, why is Hosea saying to Jacob's descendants about, I have a problem with you because your ancestor wrestled with God? It's because that's what they're doing too, isn't it? They're striving with God. They're fighting against God. And so Jacob wrestled all night with this angel. Do you remember the angel displaced Jacob's hip? And so he walked away with a limp. He was kind of punished for wrestling with God, for striving with God. But but here's the interesting thing. In the end, he walked away with a a blessing. He he won. That's That's an interesting thing. Now look at verse three, verse four, rather. It says, Jacob strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. Now how could, how could that happen? How could somebody wrestle with God and win? When you fight against God, you, you lose. But here Jacob fought against God and won. He walked away not dead, but blessed. Punished, injured, but blessed. Why? The text says, because he wept and sought his favor. Now again, the way Hosea is telling this story, he's doing it to paint a picture for Israel. For them to understand who they are in relation to God. Right now, you're a people who are fighting against God. And you need to stop. And you need to weep. And you need to seek God's favor. But here's the paradox about Israel. Here's the strange thing about Israel. The strange thing about Israel in comparison to any other people. Here's a people that are going to wrestle against God and win. And they're going to come out and be blessed in spite of the fact that they've been wrestling against God. Why? Because God has made promises. And God doesn't break His promises. God keeps his word. And so this people that are fighting against God, you would think that God would say, I'm done with you. And there's several times in the book of Hosea that God says exactly that. You're not my people. I'm done with you. Get away from me. But then there's this tension and God says, but I can't. I love you. You're my child. And in spite of the way you've been treating me and in spite of how unfaithful you've been and in spite of the fact that your punishment is coming and for hundreds of years you're going to suffer because of what you've done, you're going to, you're going to limp. But I will bless you. And I will keep my promises to you and through you and for you. I mean, that's an amazing story, isn't it? That there could be a people that in spite of what they've done against God, in spite of their sins, in spite of them wrestling against God, God holds on to them and says, you're going to prevail. If you only weep and seek my favor, in the end, I will will bless you. Now, keep reading in verse 4. He says, 
He met God at Bethel or Bethel, and there God spoke with us. Now, they were familiar with the city of Bethel. That was in Israel. It wasn't far from there. That may have been the people to whom Hosea was speaking. He was, they were in Bethel. And Bethel was a town that was named by Jacob. Do you remember Jacob had a dream there? He took a nap or he slept and he saw this ladder stretching up to heaven and the Lord was at the top and there were angels coming up and going down. And, and Jacob woke up after God made all kinds of promises to him and to his descendants. And Jacob woke up and said, this is the house of God, Bethel, the house of God. But all throughout the book of Hosea, Hosea doesn't refer to it as Bethel, the house of God. He refers to it as Bethaven, the house of wickedness. Because instead of being a place where they worship God, it was a place where they worshiped idols. But here Hosea reminds them that Israel, Bethel, is the house of the Lord. And it's the place where not only God spoke to Jacob, but through Jacob, God spoke to them. Do, do you see? Do, do you see how Hosea wants the people of Israel for their theology and what they know and believe about God to be primarily rooted not in what's going on in their lifetime? Not what's going on in their, I mean, they're eating and drinking and being merry. Everything seems great and wonderful, and it's not. He wanted their theology to be rooted in the story of Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob. And what God had said through Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and the law, He wanted that to be the root of their theology, reminding them, do you remember? God spoke to us at Bethel. He spoke to us in the house of God, promising us, That we were his people and he was our God and he was going to bless us. He's going to multiply us and he was going to bless every nation through us. Verse 5. The Lord, or Yahweh, the God of hosts, Yahweh, is his memorial name. The God of heaven, the God of heaven the creator, the only true and living God, revealed himself to this people and made a covenant with them and said, I am Yahweh. Don't just call me generically God, but I'm going to reveal myself to you and make a covenant to you so it's like you're my spouse, you're my family, you're my own flesh and blood. The God of hosts, the God, as some translations say, the God of angel armies, Yahweh, is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice. In other words, don't cheat people or oppress people and speak up for the oppressed. Speak up for the people that are being taken advantage of. Return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Why? Because you are Jacob. Because you are Israel. 
Because you are the people that you wrestle with God, but you're also the people that God will bless and that God has made a promise to. So return and hold fast and wait. Return and hold fast and wait. Return and hold fast and wait. God will show up. God will show up. And 700 years later, God showed up. Not just in sending someone, but God took on flesh and dwelt among us. God showed up to bless Israel and to bless every nation through Israel and to make you a part of Israel, that all of those who follow the Messiah Jesus, you are now a part of this people. This is your story. And this should be what primarily shapes your theology. Why do you return to God? Why do you hold fast to love and justice? Why do you wait continually for your God? Because we're in another period of waiting, aren't we? God showed up, and God redeemed, and God showed us who he was, and God made a new people out of two people, Jews and Gentiles, and he made us part of the new Israel, and then we're supposed to wait, return, and hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. Why? Why do you wait for him? Why do you believe that God really does keep promises? Is it just because of what you've experienced in your own personal life? Psh, 30 years, 40 years, 80, 90 years. That's nothing. Our story is bigger than 90 years. Our story is thousands of years old. This is the God who keeps every promise. So that I know if the doctor tells me I have cancer, God is still a God who keeps his promises. I know if my children die, God is still a God who keeps his promises. I know if the economy collapses, God is still a God who keeps his promises. Jesus is on the throne. We know, even if we've wrestled against God, And we know that even if we've been unfaithful to God, that if we will weep and seek his favor, God is a God who still blesses because God will return and cancer will be no more and death will be no more. And the poor and the hungry and the homeless will not be so anymore. And war will be no more. And heartbreak will be no more. I have confidence in those things, not because of what I've experienced in my own personal life, even though I'm thankful for the things I've experienced in my personal life. I believe those things because I'm a part of this story. I'm a part of the story where God shows up. And God keeps his promises. It may take decades. It may take centuries. It may take thousands of years. But God shows up. And one day, I'm confident, Jesus 
who showed up will show up again. And all the things that make us weep today, all the things that break our heart today will be gone. So the the message for us is the same message as it was to the people of Hosea's day. Return. Hold fast to love and justice. And wait continually for your God. But church, it doesn't stop there, you see? Because we are filled. We are, we are surrounded by people who just like in Hosea's day didn't know the Lord. I mean, Hosea could say about the people of Israel, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. They're swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. They break all bonds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Our neighborhood and our community and our city and our state and our country is filled with people that don't know God. Their theology is primarily shaped by their own personal experiences. And it's our job. It's our job to show them the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who was, became flesh and dwelt among us, the God who reigns, the God who keeps his promises, the God who will return, the God who, the God who always does what he says he'll do, that's the God that it's our job to go out into this community and teach them and show them and help them to know that's our job. You know, it's always funny when people say, well, I think, you know, I mean, the church needs to only be so big. You know, it doesn't need to be any big. Says who? Says who? Church, there are thousands of people that need to hear about Jesus. There are millions of people who need to hear about Jesus. There are billions of people worldwide who need their theology to be shaped by the story of Israel, by the story of Israel's God, by the story that culminates in the coming of Jesus, in his birth, in his life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his reign. And so we say to our neighbors, to our friends, and to each other, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for our God. And maybe it's time for somebody here this morning to return. Come back home. Come to him. He's the God who loves you, who wants to forgive you and bless you. I know that not based on what's happened in your life. I know that not based on what's happened in my life. I know that based not on stories that I've heard people tell me, but on this story, on the story of our God. And so if you need somebody to help convince you that God loves you and he wants you in his family, or if you're ready to put Jesus on in baptism, or you need somebody to pray with you and help remind you it's going to be okay. It's all going to be okay because Jesus keeps his promises. If we can do that for you this morning, then our shepherds would love to pray with you after service or right now. Come forward as we stand and sing.